Welcome to another conversation in Practical Theology with me, Sayyida Zaidi, and my co-host, Eric Stoddart. Today, we're going to be looking at the subject of race. And um, kind of as we were preparing just before starting the recording for this, we were having a quick conversation about race and different aspects of race and the kind of different meanings and definitions, but also what is the conversation around race within practical theology and to be honest I don't actually know the answer to that so I'm gonna now hand over to my learned colleague (laughs) ask if there if there is a position on race within practical theology well I think finding a position in practical theology on anything is is I think a fruitless task we're all going to have multiple different perspectives on an issue. But I think, generally speaking, race hasn't featured much in practical theology in the UK. And, you know, I'm just thinking back to when, when you and I met at the Bayat Conference in the summer uh, of 2017, Anthony Reddy was giving his paper as um, a black practical theologian uh, from, from England. Uh, and his clear articulation of the issues that he faced around race and the absence of conversation within practical theology. So as far as I can recall, that was the first time, certainly as an association, we'd had a paper of race. I, I could easily have forgotten something, but it's not been high on the agenda. I think because we, as practical theologians, as an association, we're pretty monochromatic um, and that has meant that the focus has been on other issues but I think certainly Anthony's challenge to us from that conference was we all have to take this seriously together and see what that says about our our discipline. Mm. And I think what was really interesting for me kind of attending the conference is that it took place in London and there was no real representation of the kind of multi-ethnicity, even multi-faith kind of context within mm-hmm. the conference itself. And I, and I think I was struck by that because I, was, I, I stayed for a couple of days, but then I was also traveling through London to get in. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of, it's as if you're going from um, a, a place where it's, it's, you know, multicolored, kind of like it, it's, incredibly diverse to something that was just very very different and it was if it just been kind of like brought in and just kind of situated and then was going to disappear again and it, it did kind of highlight the um the black and whiteness of it dare I say mm-hmm. you know it was quite a stark uh, comparison and, and I think um Anthony's kind of conversation was a really important starting point. But what's also interesting for me, I think, is that there hasn't been much published on um, other faiths within practical theology. There hasn't Mm. been much published on um, other um, cultures, other races, all of these kind of... And and, and then we have the whole conversation around colour as well, you know. Mm -hmm. And Mm. it's just may i'm kind of wondering why that is and 
as dare I say, I still feel like a little bit of an outsider in the world of practical theology and kind of coming in and observing, I wonder how ready practical theology is to bring in race as a conversation in the same way it has done with an issue like feminism, because there's so Mm -hmm. much written about women's issues and feminism within practical theology. And I think that's partly because so many people, you know, who are feminists and women have kind of come into it. Mm -hmm. But then the issue here is actually much broader, isn't it? It's what needs to be done within practical theology to actually expand it so that others feel more welcome coming in. Absolutely. And I think you're right about how feminism is such a strong strain within practical theology because so many practical theologians have been our feminists and have shaped the discipline. Now, I think the conversation that you and I are having is it's part of what we're doing now as practical theology. We're doing this as practical theologians. So we're, we're starting off well, maybe starting off is too bold a statement, but we're, we're having this conversation and we're exploring issues such as race here now, and that's practical theology. We're, we're doing it. Yeah. So it, there is space. This is, this is what you and I are doing now. So that, I think, gives me hope. I, I was reflecting once about whether I would self-identify as a white practical theologian. And... I've been really torn about doing that because I think it might be important and I'd be really interested to hear your reaction to it if I was said, right, I'm doing quite practical theology. Would that be a distancing of other people? Does white now carry the inevitable connotation of white supremacy? But if I just say I'm doing practical theology as if I'm ignorant of race even as a social construct, and skin colour and uh, identity and names and all of that that go along with issues around race. If I pretend that it doesn't exist by just saying I'm a practical theologian, I may be doing a disservice. But if I say I'm a white practical theologian, wow, that's, that's, a, big, that's a big step. What, what, what do you make of that statement? Yeah, it's... it's um... It's interesting because I I know we've kind of spoken in previous conversations about how loaded some words are. Mm -hmm. And I think that words like black, white, Asian, you know, whatever you want to call it, they come with baggage. Mm -hmm. And so even though technically you are a white practical theologian, actually when you identify as that, the connotations of what that means are, I think, probably very different to what you are because that word has been hijacked. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think hijack is, is a really good term for that. And I think that's probably why I... And, and actually within the world of of faith and practical theology, are we then saying that people do get pigeonholed based on um, colour and where they're from? 
or do they get pigeonholed? And, and it does happen. We all know it. So I'm using that term appropriately, right? Mm -hmm. Do they get pigeonholed based on um, what kind of um, path they're following within their faith? You know, and all religions have buckets, right? So those buckets are then kind of like used as the identifying factor. And then the faith is used as an identifying factor. So there's so many different layers to all of this. And, and I, I can't remember where I did it, but once there was an exercise where I did, where you had to write down 40 I am's, I think it was actually Anthony Reddy who got us to do that at the end of his session. And it's really powerful because when you look at your statements, when you when the first thing that you write compared to towards the end, it just makes you think, well, what am I really, you know? And yes, this conversation is about race and how that fits in within practical theology. But I think at a very um, kind of naive level, we're just souls, right? We're just kind of like occupying this physical space and we all can have that kind of human connection. And I know what I'm saying is kind of like very airy-fairy and idealistic, but I would like to think when we approach life like that, some of the fear is taken away, you know? And there's, there is a lot of division within faith that is based on color and ethnicity and, and, you know, um, it, gosh, it, last time I think we spoke about, you know, the different accents. I mean, there's even division between, you know, North London and South London, for example. Right. But I believe that Islam teaches us that when we, if we're going to kind of like judge or um, assess a person, we kind of assess them, based on who they are and what they stand for rather than on their color or um, where they're from. And, and it's really interesting because the last ever sermon delivered by the prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, actually covered the issue of race. And, it, you know, he said, all mankind is from Adam and Eve an Arab has no superiority over a non-Arab and a non-Arab has no superiority over an Arab. Also, a white person has no superiority over a black person, nor does a black person have superiority over a white, except by piety and good action. Mm. And for me, that's really interesting because what we, like piety and good action in practice is in some ways just being a decent human being, right? But so many of us have forgotten how to do that that we then kind of retreat to safe places and end up having friends that are just like us, living in communities just like us. And I think the biggest challenge that comes from that is there's no real exploration of what's going out in the world, uh, or sorry, going on in the world. And as your life becomes richer through travel and learning about different um, peoples, actually you become a much better human being. And, I, and I'm convinced that that's something that all faith teaches us. Yeah, because I think there's a, there's a tension between naming something, whether it's whatever characteristic gets associated with race, to, to, to name that because that characteristic, let's say skin colour, has material disadvantage for certain groups of people in particular places at particular times. 
And for those of us in the majority skin colour to not acknowledge that, that I think is wrong. But then by acknowledging and talking about skin colour, we're sort of putting something out there for discussion that is then, is it dividing people or is it uniting people? And to me, there's that tension between naming something in order to address it or naming something that then it becomes more divisive. And I'm not sure whether that could ever be resolved. See, I think one of the biggest issues in the world today isn't about, I mean, clearly race with colour is a huge issue and we're seeing that in America um, in terms of the, the young people that are being shot dead for absolutely no reason, right? But one of the biggest issues, I think, globally goes beyond race as colour. There's also race as religion, mm. right? And so it's interesting for me because my family would technically be defined as mixed race because my husband is of Scottish and Welsh heritage and um, I'm Pakistani heritage, even though born and bred in London. And my kids are mixed race. And we've traveled quite a lot as well. So we have lots of interesting experiences that we've had in our life. But then when I was having my, I think it was my daughter actually, in the hospital, they wrote down my husband not as white British. They ticked the box for him to be Pakistani. I'm just thinking, can you not see that this guy is white with a red beard? But, or are you seeing him in a different colour because he's with me? That is fascinating. That they, they, they would tick the box, first of all, rather than ask. But something was going on in what they saw, what they expected. That's, that's everyday life. And I'll tell you something else that's interesting as well, because I'm fascinated by this whole stuff to do with race and religion and all of this. And so um, I, I think it was about a year ago, my husband just kind of like, he, he looked at me and he just said, there's something going on here and I can't quite pinpoint it. And he said, and it doesn't feel nice. And I said to him, welcome to my world, except I've had 40 plus years of this. And what he realized was that when he's by himself, people treat him differently. And dare I say, he experiences white privilege. Mm -hmm. But when he's with me or with my daughter or with um, our daughter, or even with our son, actually, he's treated differently because all of a sudden there's an identification of him as a Muslim. Um, so, so people, it's by association that people are ascribing to your husband particular characteristics, their expectations, their evaluation of him. Yeah. And for them, race and religion are in, entangled. So, so they wouldn't, if they see someone of Pakistani heritage who's a Christian, how, they're probably not going to even, are they going to have that conceptual framework that you could be Pakistani and Christian? I don't know. And there is actually mm. somebody on the DPT in Glasgow who is Pakistani and Catholic. And it was just really interesting, even just observing um, how people are with her and how people are with me. 
I just, I, I do think that there is something there about religion being treated as race as well. Because, you know, if you, if you, if we think about it, like, you know, in, in Islam, we don't have any pictorial references of the prophet of any of the prophets, but there is within Christianity of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, without stating the obvious, Jesus was from the Middle East, right? So there is no way that he would have been white with blonde hair and blue eyes. But how the pictures get portrayed is fascinating because it's all to do with the culture or the population of those churches. This is certainly how I perceive it, you know, and so... I think you're absolutely right because those visual representations of Jesus are incredibly powerful. And they're steeped, certainly, in Western art and culture, and they have a power well beyond just the Christian church. And that representation of Jesus as a white man with pristine, clean robes, which would have been a miracle of itself <laughs> in, in an agricultural community. Um, clean-shaven. <laughs> clean, clean-shaven, yeah, well... Um, bearded, but very usually quite nicely trimmed beard. Mm -hmm. uh, Jesus is not someone in those artistic representations that you would be ashamed to take home to your grandmother. That sort of um, idealised figure. And I wonder if that's actually part of what it is. It's an idealising and a projecting onto the figure of religious faith what we actually think is the ideal person. Mm. And that's shocking, but understandable within the context of Western culture. But how how we move on from that? Now, as you say, Islam, you don't have pictorial representations. So, but is, is there a similar racial thing actually going on? So there are, there are no pictorial um, kind of um, references or images or anything in the the descriptions of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, are very, very specific and they're only in words. So it kind of mm -hmm. then leaves it up to your imaginations. And I, yeah, the, the, it's not possible to make, to take any of that and turn it into something. However, there still is racism and it would be remiss of me to ignore that because even, for example, like selecting which mosque we go to, I would rather go to a mosque that is completely open and welcoming. And um, whilst I believe, you know, wearing a headscarf is obligatory, some people don't. And there are some mosques that will even kind of like push, um, not, not, not push people away, but they, they won't be as welcoming to women who want to go to the mosque without a headscarf on. And... I think that in, in some respects, some mosques are very divisive. And there was one that I went to once, actually, um, where I was wearing a, quite a kind of colourful um, abaya. And abaya is the, the long dress that I would wear. And um, I just, I was at work. I wanted to, I thought, let's go for Friday prayers. Went to the mosque, turned up in my normal kind of like clothes and everyone just turned around and looked and I was like, I'm not wearing their black uniform. 
that was the difference. Mm -hmm. And I thought, thank you very much. I won't be coming here again. But you see, that that happens in Christian churches. And, you know, to me, one of the saddest things is that Sunday is probably one of the most segregated days in the Christian calendar Mm. because of the, the, and it is skin colour will be dividing churches very acutely in the United States, but to a large extent also in in, Mm. in the UK. And that's, I can absolutely understand why folks would want to culturally gather together. Yeah, I can't. That's really weird. I just don't understand it. Because I think that for me, it's like the principles of your faith are there. And how I practice in some ways, is exactly the same as how... um, There's a wonderful mosque in Edinburgh, by the way. I mean, it floors me. Every time I go, I have to go. And it's right in the centre of town. It's amazing. And when I go there, that's another um, welcoming place. They they even have a cafe um, uh, at the side of the mosque that's open for anyone to go and eat, and they do a lot of incredible work with the homeless. Now, for me, that's the representation of a mosque that's open to anyone, because the practice of me in London is the same as the practice of somebody in Edinburgh, same as the practice of somebody in Morocco or California or wherever. It's, it's about the practice rather than the color or the ethnic, ethnicity or the kind of cultural traditions that come. They add some spice to it, but that, in my opinion, that shouldn't be the main focus. Right, see, that is so interesting because within Christianity, cultural differences in terms of worship are really very exaggerated and extreme. That um, the sort of high liturgical um, incense and bells and, and 19th century hymns that I'm part of is miles away culturally from different types of Pentecostal charismatic worship that is much more spontaneous, that's much more, the music is different, the, the iconography is, is, is different, the, the way people conduct themselves, um, you know, we are very reserved in my tradition, uh, others will be much more exuberant, and that's a mixture of theological issues, it's a mixture of tradition, but it's also, it carves up um, culturally as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, within Scotland, you know, I, I would feel extremely uncomfortable in certain types of Scottish cultural Christianity, let alone the theological issues, the cultural dimensions of it. And and I think that, I'm wondering if that actually is the, not the issue around race, but it, it's, it's what sort of confronts us, that cultural difference of whether it's food or language or behavior, how, how we reach out, greet each other, physical actions are so different. And within Christianity, that's you know, probably sort of the find two churches quite the same. Um, but you're describing to me a, a unity and practice of faith that's simply not there in Christianity. Yeah, I mean, like when when we went to California, gosh, a couple of years ago, 
and um, turned up to this mosque and I was just thinking, you know, I wonder what it's going to be like. And actually it reminded me, I said, you should be twinned. There's a mosque in London that is so similar in terms of the work that they're doing with the community, the great facilities that they have for the youth and all of it. And I was just thinking, twin them, you know, literally, because they're following the same, they're just as welcoming and it's, it's very exciting for me to find a place that far away that where I can still feel as if I'm at home, you know, and the same when I went to the one in Edinburgh, because I actually went when it was Ramadan and we went for um, a late evening prayer and I felt, I mean, I closed my eyes and I felt as if I was in Egypt. I just felt so kind of like amazingly, and inspired and you know connected with my faith and all of that other stuff and there's there are places all over the world that will bring that feeling and that is true of the different strands within christian worship because i know that you know if i if i go somewhere now on holiday i'll try and find an, an anglican church that is doing things similarly to how i would do we would do them in edinburgh but and i know folks are coming to edinburgh to visit will come to our church because it's pretty much like their one. Yeah. But you, you would find 10, 20 different, totally different styles, even mm. of Anglican worship, let alone within Protestant worship, or then include Catholic and Orthodox. It, it's, it's so varied that mm. we will tend... I, I think it's not just about familiarity. It's about... Very practical things like knowing when to stand up and sit down. Yeah. And if you're a visitor, you want to go somewhere that, even if it's not, not your own verbal language, it's the same body language. Yeah. Because you don't want to stick out. Mm. And I think that's the thing that's in some ways is easier about Islam because the prayer is the prayer, right? Regardless of wherever you do it in the world, it's got the same kind of movements. There might be some minor technical um, differences, and that's something that's interesting as well, because there's four main kind of um, schools of thought within Islam. And um, my husband follows a different one to the one that I follow. And I remember once, because they, so they pray with their hands down as opposed to hands on their chest like this folded. And I remember once um, my husband was praying and afterwards everyone was like, did he do it properly? And then you have to explain the differences that are permitted. You know, and I think people also find it weird that we have got that kind of like um, that we are in a family, actually, that is very diverse within those four schools of thought, because most families will stick to one. Whereas I just think, you know, at the end of the day, your relationship is with God, right? The other stuff is just there to guide you and you choose whatever works for you. But your relationship certainly for me it's directly with god i don't need anyone to tell me um you know exactly how i should be doing it except of course for like some of the rules i mean it's important for us to know the the parameters that are there but once you know them the rest of it is down to you you know even when it comes to things like the quality of your prayer you only you will ever be the one that knows the quality of your prayer between you and god and you don't get the assessment until the end. <laughs> so, yes, I'm wondering what it, what is it about race that we actually, as it were, 
I don't want to trivialise it, that we bump up against each other about what actually, is it actually something like skin colour? Is it really language? Is it really culture? What, what, what is it that's, that we find uncomfortable about another's different? I think that there is a fear that is fueled by um, the noises that we hear. And just some of that comes from the media. Some of it comes from um, things that we've heard or read in the past. Um, and some of it is just because it's, we, we have, um, and then I think what I'm going to say is quite controversial, but it has to be said, I think, because it's the truth. Everyone has prejudice, right? Everyone does. But acknowledging that we all have prejudice is very, very hard. And realizing how you respond to that prejudice is the most important thing. I'm not saying that everyone is racist. But what I'm saying is that everybody has a group of people that they feel more drawn to and a group of people that they might not like so much because of something that happened when they were three years old, right? But being aware of that is important because when you know it, then you can think, oh, okay, I've got to be conscious of that so that when I see somebody in that group, I'm not judging them based on that memory that I have of when I was young. I'm, I'm kind of like... Um, engaging with them, speaking to them, approaching them just as a fellow human being. And that, I think, is challenging because even today, most of the messages that we have are coming from social media or from the news or from others. And so fear is crazy. And I'll give you an example. Today is supposed to be um, a, a particular type of day. I don't really even want to say it because I don't want to add any... Um, uh, extra weight to the advertisement of that day but essentially it's about punishing a group of people and so I know people who fit in that group who are very fearful of going out because social media has spread that message and I just think where is the fear sitting most of it is just inside here you know unless somebody has actually kind of and, and I mean, somebody as in, an individual has done anything to harm you. You have no, we have no right to judge that person based on them being part of a group of people. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right about, there's the two things that as you're saying, the media representations, but also our own personal experience. And yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about, I, I, I spent, couple of months in South Africa back in 1996 and I got mugged in the street like hundreds of thousands of people in South Africa. Uh, it was lunchtime in Durban, I was walking towards the beach and a couple of guys came up with a knife and they got the cost of an ice cream off me, that was it. And I thought, oh well I've been mugged, that's it, um, I survived that. But I know that for ages after I was very jumpy about being in a street where there were a couple of guys who I didn't know and who could have been following me. Now, that wasn't just true in South Africa. It was true back in the UK. So I don't think it was about their skin colour. 
I think it was that experience made me jumpy about having people walk behind me in a narrow lane where there's no escape, regardless mm. of what skin colour they have. But obviously in the setting of South Africa, there was an additional dimension to it. Um, so those become often profound experiences for us. And I think you're right to say that if we reflect on our experiences of harm from people, then that makes us conscious of what we need to what we what we need to be aware of as individuals, so we don't project that prejudice onto everybody else. Mm. But that's a conscious process. The natural default is to project it onto everybody else of either the same skin colour or ethnic origin or language or whatever it is. It seems to be a natural reaction. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I don't think it's going to come overnight. I think it's, it's a good actual, it's a, it's a good kind of place for reflexivity and for journaling and just kind of trying to understand ourselves more because when we can do that then we become more connected with who we are and our faith and humanity and you know taking what you've said as an example I um I went out running with my husband a couple of um months ago in the snow at about 5 a.m I know I'm crazy right so it was dark and um he was just going up and I said the thing is I want you to understand what it's like for me as a woman running at this time because it's dark and I said I'm looking behind those bins to see if anyone's there I'm looking at that person ahead of me I'm looking is that person at the bus stop fine because there is a thing about fear does that mean that I'm gonna be um scared of all men no you know but I have to be kind of like careful and wise and protect myself and I think for me the situation that you described is one of where an incident happened and then we just have to be wise you know rather than kind of um judging everybody like that and especially after an incident has happened you you will always be like but I'll tell you what's the other thing that came to my mind is um, I was in a very, very serious car accident in, where my car was hit by a white van and the car got crushed and I was in hospital, and et cetera, et cetera. I'll tell you the story another time. But it happened on the, um, the Kingston Bridge in Glasgow. Now, does that then mean that I'm going to see every guy who's driving a white van in Glasgow in the same way as that person? perhaps in the six months or a year after that, but now I don't even notice it anymore. So, and I think that's come through working through um, that experience. So, dare I say there's reflexivity about who we are and about our experiences and maybe even just pinpointing the kind of different people who we've had interesting interactions with with in the past so that we are aware of that and we change our approach to those groups now yeah because i think that reflexivity that you know is so integral to practical theology is is maybe something that we're realizing the value of not just it's not just academically but it's about forming and cultivating our own sense of self and what that means in terms of relationship to others. 
and bringing race, whether it's skin colour or culture or religion or whatever, into that reflexivity consciously as a practical theological exercise is actually, it's as much a spiritual discipline mm. as, a, as an academic exercise. But we seem to be, the, the, our discipline will be well set up to encourage us to do that sort of reflexivity. Yeah, absolutely. And then it's interesting because um, as you were speaking, I was thinking, you know, does, does a soul have a gender? Does a soul have a colour? You know, because when we leave the world, the only thing that's going to be left is our spirit. And is it that we've been given these kind of vessels to house us in this world so that our kind of um, base uh, theory of life comes out? Does that make sense? Because when we interact with other people, we express ourselves in ways that are very different than if we were just all uniform and exactly the same. I think, I think it makes sense. I'm, I'm not sold into the idea of, of a soul, a separate soul. Um, but I think the essence of being a human being mm. is, is the same. And, and that fundamental, we are human beings. This, this, this is who we are. And however the difference is expressed, that's, that's not, the difference is not who we are. We, we share life. Yeah. We are human beings together. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think, it, you know, we can have differences of opinion, we can, you know, cook things differently. We can approach life differently. It's all okay. That's the thing that kind of makes life much more interesting. But to think that my way is better than your way or that somebody is superior because of color or gender, it just kind of becomes such a, a, a big issue that that's where I think um, we end up with a lot of, difficulty and challenge and and one of the things that I would like to do through my work in practical theology is just make the experience of life so much more interesting and bring more joy into it and I think that when we do experience things like um, racism or challenge in any way shape or form it, it doesn't enhance our quality of life so why is it there? And I think naming it as someone else's racism, my racism will have a negative effect on you, on other people. And owning our own attitudes, I think, seems to me to be the crucial thing because I suppose I'm, I, I don't want to be someone who's casting aspersions against others for their racism. I want to be looking at where is the prejudice, where is preference becoming something that is negative for other people. Yeah. That I can, I can prefer one taste of food over something else, and that's all it is. It is simply a preference. I shouldn't be elevating that to say that sort of food is better than others. Mm. And similarly in terms of people's characteristics, 
there is a human tendency to want to elevate preference up to something that actually judges other people. Mm. But knowing that, identifying that, maybe even being open enough to somebody challenging me about my racism. No, that's a big one. <laughs> that's a big mm. one. But, but I, I think, think the challenge comes in... Sorry, go on. I was just saying that I think that is the challenge. That's, that's the uncomfortable bit of practical theology, um, to hear challenges to my own preferences that I've elevated to prejudices. Mm. And, and, and I think that begins through the reflexivity and reflection. Because when I said earlier that we all have prejudice, I think that for me, I kind of realized that about 10 years ago and it just made me pay attention um, to what I was doing in my circle. And, you know, I, I, of course, I still have prejudice, right? We all still do. It's just about the awareness of that so that we can then say, okay, I need to be more conscious about how... I am behaving in this situation, right? And I think that comes through reflexivity. So for me, there's like, I suppose in, in drawing this to a close, one of the things that I would say is that for us as individuals, for anybody who's watching, you know, maybe go away and journal and reflect on where is it that you have a prejudice and what could you do to approach that situation without prejudice? Um, and I think that kind of statement there is also for the um, gatekeepers of practical theology, because I think in order to move the conversation of race and um, colour and different faiths on within the field of practical theology, um, you know, those kind of leaders within the field really need to tackle these subjects head on and be much more conscious and much more um, inclusive about how they do that and and have those difficult conversations it's never going to be easy but I think that's the challenge that I would set them so yeah and, and I, would, I would echo that and I think that whole thing about reflexivity is really key and um, to finish on a light note they're not sponsoring us, but I would heartily endorse the Edinburgh Mosque Kitchen. I've been there a few times. Absolutely fantastic. Um, when they first opened, it was paper plates, and that was really annoying. Oh. <laughs> but they've gone up to, 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 to nice crockery and absolutely fantastic food. So, as I say, they're not sponsoring us. We're not asking for any sponsorship, but a shout out to the Edinburgh Mosque Kitchen. They're fantastic. Gosh, it was closed when I went, so I've got to I've got to come back and go another time. Hopefully, we'll meet and we'll record one of these face to face in there or something like that. <laughs> yes, let's do that. We'll do one in the mosque kitchen. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Eric. I think it's been a very kind of um, insightful and uh, uh, deep conversation about the kind of issues of race within practical theology and how religion approaches um, race as well. I think if anyone's got any comments or any observations or any kind of feedback that they'd like to give us, you know, please just comment below um, this video and we will pick it up. We'd love to hear from you about different topics that you would like us to cover as well. And uh, hopefully we will see you again in another conversation in practical theology. Thank you so much and take care and goodbye.
Goodbye. Thanks for watching.